Assalamu alaikum. Welcome back to Season 5 of the Islamic History Podcast. I'm your host, Mutaki Ismail. In this series, we are discussing the events of World War I that ultimately led to the partition of the Ottoman Empire. This is Episode 515, Sykes and Picot. Before we get into the episode, let's do a brief recap of where we are so far. Sharif Hussein, the Ottoman governor of Mecca, has confirmed his decision to revolt against the Ottomans if the British support him. He begins corresponding with Sir Henry McMahon, the British High Commissioner in Egypt, informing him of his demands. Henry McMahon gives carefully worded responses, never promising anything but keeping Sharif Hussein within the British fold. This prompts the British to hold talks with the French to see how much they could offer to Sharif Hussein. And with that, let's begin our discussion of the negotiations that led to the infamous Sykes-Picot Agreement. The Ottoman Situation By the autumn of 1915, the situation in the Ottoman Empire really wasn't all that bad. The Ottomans had finally won a few battles against the Russians, halting their push into Turkey's interior and even retaking some of that territory. And the Ottomans surprised everyone with their resiliency in the Gallipoli campaign where they fought the British and the French navies to a standstill. The young Turk government had also managed to thwart a potential Armenian rebellion, However, doing so led to a disastrous massacre, which we will discuss in the next episode. The Turks had also snuffed out another rebellion by arresting various Arab nationalists. Internationally, things were also looking pretty good for the Ottomans. Earlier that summer, Germany had pushed Russia out of Poland, leading to the occupation of its capital, Warsaw. And a few months later, Bulgaria finally made up its mind and joined the war on the side of the Central Powers. Even though they had fought against the Ottoman Empire in the past, Bulgaria had recently lost territory to other Balkan states. Since these other Balkan states had sided with the Allied Powers, Britain and France could not promise this territory to Bulgaria. However, the Central Powers did make that promise, and that was the deciding factor for the Bulgarians. With Bulgaria on their side, communication and transportation between Germany and the Ottoman Empire became much easier. Mark Sykes and Francois-Georges Picot the McMahon-Hussein correspondence that took place in the autumn of 1915 led to negotiations between the British and the French in the winter of 1915. Before Britain could make concrete promises to Sharif Hussein, they had to know just how far they could go without violating French claims in Syria. Britain had long since recognized these claims, and as their ally in the war, they could not make any offers to Sharif Hussein without French approval. The British were hoping the French would make some concessions to Sharif Hussein regarding Syria. And so, French diplomat Francois-Georges Picot traveled to London to discuss these concessions the British wanted them to consider. 
Representing the British in these talks was Mark Sykes, who, unlike his French counterpart, was a diplomatic rookie. It was bad enough Mark Sykes had the impossible task of reconciling British, French, and Arab desires. He also had to tangle with an experienced negotiator like George Picot. As a negotiator, Mark Sykes's goal should have been to get as much as possible while giving up as little as possible. Instead, he entered the negotiations impatient, unprepared, and afraid the French would reject Kitchener's Arab Caliphate idea. Sykes further weakened his position by exposing his eagerness to strike a deal. Of course, with British soldiers dying every day at Gallipoli and the young Turks possibly closing in on Sharif Hossein, he really was short on time. But the French didn't know that. Another thing working against Mark Sykes was his own prejudice against the Arabs and his bias towards the French. After all, the French were British allies in this terrible war and, like Mark Sykes, the French were Catholic. Mark Sykes did not really believe the Arabs could function as an independent state. He thought they would be happy as a vassal for either the British or the French. He did not fully appreciate Sharif Hossein's desire for true independence. The reality was that Sharif Hossein wanted neither a British nor a French protectorate. Sharif Hossein wanted an independent state. And because Mark Sykes thought the Arabs would be happy as a vassal, he also thought they'd be happy as a French vassal. For Mark Sykes, it made no difference which country was the Arab overlord. And this exposed how little he understood the difference between French and British colonial policies. The French had a history of imposing their own culture and character on their colonies. However, the British generally allowed their colonial subjects to maintain their culture and simply exploited their labor and natural resources. Mark Sykes knew that Sharif Hossein was suspicious of French intentions in Syria, but he thought these suspicions were overblown and that the Arabs were just being paranoid. He hoped these negotiations would ease Sharif Hossein's fears and prove the British had good intentions. The Negotiations Herbert Horatio Kitchener and Mark Sykes actually wanted France to take over all of Syria. In the case of an Allied victory, Russia had demanded Istanbul and the Dardanelles Strait. If this happened, Kitchener wanted a French Syria to act as a buffer between British Egypt and Russian territory. However, this is not what British Egypt wanted. They wanted Mark Sykes to advocate for Arab control over Syria's primary cities, Aleppo, Homs, Hama, and Damascus. But let's be clear, it's not that the British office in Cairo wanted Sharif Hossein to be an independent leader. They really wanted him to be a puppet leader under their control. While Mark Sykes misunderstood what both the British and the Arabs wanted, Francois-Georges Picot knew exactly what the French wanted. 
Francois-Georges Picot was a lawyer and diplomat who had become the French Consul General in Beirut just before the war broke out. While he was stationed in Lebanon, he established connections to the local Maronite Christian community. Like the other decision-makers back in Paris, Picot fully believed in French imperial ambitions and a French Syria. It's important to understand that the French considered Syria to include all of the Levant. This included the lands that currently make up Israel, Lebanon, Palestine, and Syria. During the negotiations with Mark Sykes, Georges Picot argued that Syria was vital to France's national security and economic interests. Based upon the Crusader conquests nearly a thousand years earlier, the French imperialists believed that France had helped shape Syria's culture. Georges Picot also claimed that the Arabs living in Syria preferred French rule, which was an outright lie as most Arabs wanted nothing to do with them. There were some French-sponsored Maronite Christians in Syria and Lebanon who may have desired French rule, but the vast majority of Arabs in the Levant did not want to live under France's domination. Of course, this was all part of Georges Picot's negotiating strategy. He knew France was not strong enough to directly rule over the entire Levant. The most France could hope for was direct rule over the coastal regions and influence over the interior. But Georges Picot was not certain the British would allow this. So he demanded more than he actually wanted, planning to negotiate downwards when Mark Sykes countered. To George Picot's delight, Mark Sykes fell for this ploy and agreed to most of his demands. The New Middle East When the negotiations ended, the future makeup of the Middle East had been set. Mesopotamia, much of the region we now call Iraq, would go to British India. France would get the Syrian coast, including Lebanon, with influence over Syria. George Picot agreed to allow an Arab ruler over Syria, but it had to be one the French controlled. The British initially wanted Alexandretta, a Mediterranean coastal town just south of Turkey. They wanted to build a railroad to Iraq, thereby connecting the Mediterranean Sea to the Persian Gulf. The French counter-offered, suggesting the British take Haifa and Acre, two coastal towns just south of the modern Lebanon-Israel border. Sykes agreed, and the French kept their claim to Alexandretta. Both Britain and France had initially laid claim to Palestine. But during the talks, they agreed it would remain under international jurisdiction, though nobody really knew what that meant. The rest of Arabia would form a future so-called independent Arab state that the British and the French could exert their influence over. Sykes believed this arrangement satisfied both the British commitment to the Arabs and the Arab desires for an independent state. British Egypt, however, was not satisfied since they weren't really getting anything. After all, France got Syria, British India got Mesopotamia, but all Cairo got was influence over the Hejaz, which was mostly barren desert. 
they didn't care about having influence over the holy cities of Mecca and Medina. British Egypt also argued that the agreement violated their promise of an independent Arab state, though it should be noted that they were just upset that France would control Syria instead of Cairo. The British and French parliaments approved this agreement between Marc Sykes and Francois-Georges Picot in February 1916. However, it would only come into force once the Arabs announced their rebellion against the Ottomans. For the time being, both sides agreed it would be best to keep everything secret. With Britain and France in agreement, the only thing left was to get the other allies, particularly Russia, to sign off on it. Russia's Input Mark Sykes and George Picot met with the Russian Foreign Minister Sergei Sazonov in Petrograd, Russia in the spring of 1916. Russia did not care about Syria nor the Levant. All they wanted was access to the Dardanelles Strait and for the Caliphate to be taken away from the Turks and for control over the land they'd already conquered in Anatolia. While in Petrograd, a Russian official pointed something out to Mark Sykes. The Sykes-Picot agreement did not take into consideration the rapidly changing situation in Palestine. European Jews had been migrating to Palestine for several decades. Zionism, the movement to establish a Jewish homeland in Palestine, was already well underway, having begun in the late 1800s. By 1916, Tel Aviv had been founded, Jews were a majority in Jerusalem, and there were signs of tension between Jews and local Palestinians. This was the first time Mark Sykes had ever heard of Zionism, and he didn't quite know what to make of it. He feared that if the Jews weren't satisfied, they might secretly sabotage the agreement. In his anti-Semitic mind, Mark Sykes even believed the Zionists might even side with the Ottomans and the Germans if they were offered Palestine. The only way to stop this, Mark Sykes thought, was for Great Britain to come out in support of the Zionist cause. When he returned to London, Sykes began learning about Zionism. He also talked about it with his Jewish friends and Jewish community leaders. With his new knowledge, he began promoting the idea of incorporating Jewish assistance in the war effort. Though he was largely ignored at first, a few British officials did take him seriously. This was the beginning of a growing Zionist movement within the British government. Final Analysis Mark Sykes, the British, and the French were simply using the Arabs as pawns. They wanted the Arabs to help them defeat the Ottomans, and they were willing to make all sorts of promises. However, they were secretly conspiring with each other behind Sharif Hussein's back to either directly or indirectly control most of the Middle East. Mark Sykes was in awe of the Zionists, but he was also an anti-Semite. He admired the Arabs, but he thought of them as children. And he was already making plans to accommodate the Zionists while betraying the Arabs at the same time. And even worse, he thought he was keeping everyone's best interests in mind. In the next episode, we will return to the Middle East and discuss the conflict between the Young Turk government and its Armenian citizens. You've been listening to the Islamic History Podcast, and we hope you've enjoyed the show. 
Subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, Podbean, Google, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Visit islamichistorypodcast.com slash WWI to find other episodes in this series. To learn more about the life of the last messenger of God, subscribe to our other show, The Prophet Muhammad Podcast. If you enjoyed these podcasts, please leave a five-star rating and review and share with your friends and family. The Islamic History Podcast is 100% listener-supported. You can support our work and get access to exclusive content by becoming a patron at patreon.com slash islamichistory. Stay tuned for a brief clip from one of these premium shows. Or, to make a one-time donation, visit islamichistorypodcast.com slash donate. Special thanks to Brother Zulfi Kasiroj for his research and support of the show, and thanks to all of our Patreon subscribers. Until next time, my name is Mutaki Ismail for the Islamic History Podcast. Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh. Assalamu alaikum. Welcome back to Islamic History Exclusive. This is the podcast exclusively for Patreon subscribers of the Islamic History Podcast. And as a Patreon subscriber, you can help choose future episodes of the Islamic History Podcast. Just visit patreon.com slash Islamic History to take part in this month's poll. In this series, we are going over the life of Salahuddin al-Ayyubi, known to the West as Saladin. And in today's episode, we'll be discussing a new Christian coalition and the chaos in Egypt. But before we get into that, let's begin with a recap of where we are so far. Using a combination of diplomacy and shrewd tactics, Nuruddin Zengi finally captured Damascus in 1154. Nuruddin was now more powerful than any other ruler in the Middle East, Christian or Muslim. Unfortunately, Nuruddin's conquests were hampered by terrible bouts of sickness and natural disasters. These difficulties created a new sense of Islamic spirituality in Nuruddin that seemed to soften his desire for war. The Franks of Uchramer considered this spiritual change in Nuruddin to be a weakness and looked for a way to exploit it. And with that, let's take a look at the Christian coalition and the chaos in Egypt. The Battles of Lake Hule and Haram in 1157, a group of Muslim shepherds from Damascus were grazing their flocks in Frankish territory near Lebanon. They had no reason to worry as they had obtained permission from the Frankish ruler of the area who also had a truce with Nuruddin. However, the king of Jerusalem had several debts and the shepherds' animals would go a long way in paying them off. Hence, he violated his agreement with Nuruddin attacking the shepherds and confiscating their animals. Infuriated by this betrayal, Nuruddin marched on the Hule Valley exacting revenge and nearly destroying the Frankish army. 
Even though King Baldwin III of Jerusalem escaped with his life, Nuruddin could have pursued the remnants of the Frankish army and inflicted irreparable damage to their dominion. As it turned out, he was struck with his first major illness and forced to call off the campaign. This betrayal was only possible because the Christians of Utremer had been emboldened by the recent arrival of a wealthy and powerful French nobleman named Count Terry of Flanders. Count Terry was a committed crusader having participated in the Second Crusade and returning again with thousands of his own soldiers. Later that year, the Count, the Kingdom of Jerusalem, and the Principality of Antioch joined forces to attack the town of Shazar in 1157. They had nearly captured it when the crusader leaders began to argue about who would take the city once it fell. Unable to come to an agreement, and unwilling to fight for another man's glory, they eventually lifted the siege and returned home. The following year, they united once again for an attack on Haram, which Nuruddin had captured nearly ten years earlier in 1149. The Franks besieged Haram until it surrendered, and this time, there were no arguments. Since Haram was formerly Antiochian territory, it went to Reynald of Chatillon, Prince of Antioch. Despite the loss of Hadam, Nuruddin had to worry about a far more dangerous enemy. Further to the north, the Eastern Roman Empire, which we now call the Byzantine Empire, was also experiencing a resurgence. Manuel I Comnenos had become the Byzantine Emperor in 1143. Emperor Manuel was on the throne when the Second Crusade began. However, he did not trust the Franks at the time and offered them very little help. This created bad feelings between the Byzantines and the Franks of Outremer, all of which was discussed in episode 8 of this series. Since ascending the throne, Emperor Manuel had spent much of the 1140s fighting wars in Italy and the Balkans. Victorious in those wars, he was now ready to re-establish ties with the Christians of the Levant. <laughs> 